Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, really good to see you if you're uh, joining us live online or if you're going to watch this later on today or in the week. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to be digging into Luke again today. Um, but just a couple of things before we do that. Uh, just some alpha feedback. Alpha is going really well. We've got nine regular guests um, and it's going really well. People are really seeking God, asking great questions. People are having prayers answered um, and uh, we're really enjoying that. We've got our Holy Spirit uh, evenings coming up in a couple of weeks time. Um, so that if you could be praying for that, that would be really good. Um, also, um, we ha do have, we would really, we are really keen to be meeting together again soon. And there are uh, changes coming in the coming weeks and months in terms of restrictions. But right now, uh, we're going to keep meeting online. We feel like uh, if we were to meet together, we'd still be limited in numbers in the building between 30 and 40. Um, and everyone would wear masks, wouldn't be able to sing, etc., like that, except the band. We just feel the gains would be small at the moment if we were to start meeting. And I think that would be well into April. But from the 29th of March, we just want to encourage people to meet in small groups of six or two households, if possible, uh, just as we can start to do community together. We just want to really encourage you to do that. And just to say, we are really keen to be together. We don't want to um, neglect meeting together as it encourages us in Hebrews. Um, but we will do that as soon as we can. And we'll just keep you updated as time goes by. But today we are back in Luke uh, and today we're in Luke chapter 18. And uh, before we dive into the verses that we're looking at today, I think it would be helpful uh, to look at two things to help us understand what we're reading. The first thing is if what we're to read is what was come before. So the previous text um, where Jesus is talking about the coming kingdom, what Andre looked at last week, the fully inaugurated kingdom where Jesus returns, the second coming. And secondly, is to read the Gospels. Read the Gospels back to front. What, what do you mean by back to front? Well, back to front is because we read everything and try to understand everything through the lens of, through the light of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' death for our sins and his resurrection. And we read everything through that. And this passage, we, we read in the light of that. And everything can only be made sense of with that in mind if we understand how the story ends. In other words, we can't take commandments of Jesus like uh, love your enemies, render to Caesar things that are Caesar's, let your eyes, let your yes be yes or your no be no, um, pray that you may not fall into temptation, let, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven and use those properly without asking bigger questions like what difference does it make? that the eternal, incarnate, fully divine, fully human, sinless son of God spoke this? What difference does it make that this, his main reason for coming was to give his life as a ransom for many and to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins? What difference does it make that Jesus thinks we were all dead in our sins and needed to be born again? And that we were all so rebellious in our hearts that we cannot come to him unless it is granted to us from the Father. If we don't ask these questions, Jesus' commandments are going to be misused. And the way the gospel writers want to be read is understanding how the story ends. 
In Matthew, it says in the first chapter, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. That's in Matthew 1. He's coming not to teach sinners, but to save sinners by his death and resurrection. Mark, in his gospel, spends almost half of Mark uh, dealing with Jesus last week of his life. If you remember back to the beginning of Luke, a long time ago now, um, where the angels declared, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour who is Christ the Lord. And the apostle John tells us in his first chapter that John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when we read, we're to understand how the story ends with Jesus dying for the forgiveness of sins and rising again as Lord of the universe. And we need to take heed of last week's reading that Andre took us through. And some of those words that Jesus spoke are to highlight something crucial to prepare us for his second coming, that he will return. And where will his faithful be? Through the end of chapter 17 last week, Jesus referred to Old Testament passages where people were caught out and surprised when God came through the earth to bring righteousness in the time of Lot and the time of Noah. And it came where he was separated the righteous and the unrighteous. That we are now to be prepared and ready, living our lives centered around the reality of the future kingdom. We must live in the fact that the kingdom has already come in the person of Jesus, bringing forgiveness and a new spiritual life through his suffering and resurrection. But yet the kingdom has not yet fully come and we wait for Jesus' return, not getting sucked into worldly pleasures and attractions or distractions, that we are actually called to die to self, not worrying about rejection from people, but urging them to come into the kingdom because there is a judgment that is coming. Not worrying about rejection, urging them, come into the kingdom. This judgment is coming, saying that Jesus is coming back to judge the whole earth. And Jesus makes the point that the disciples are going to live in a time between the first coming and the second coming. They won't experience the second coming in their earthly life. He also makes the point that the second coming will be totally different from the first one. The first one comes in his earthly ministry, uh, bringing salvation, bringing the offer of God's grace uh, and his love to people, which they can voluntarily accept or not. But the second coming is going to be a public event known to all of humanity who live on the earth at that particular time. It will be an unknown time and it will be coming in power and authority and judgment, which will lead to the final division of humanity between those who believe in Jesus as the Messiah and those who don't. And with that in mind, we come to this week's text, and as we read it, we have that in mind. Because as we read this first bit, it could be easily thinking about it's just persisting in personal prayer. A lot of P's, persisting in personal prayer. And on one level, it could be about that, but there is a deeper meaning on this first section. Oh, geez, can you just get the clicker, please? Thank you. Thank you. 
So we're, we're going to dig in from Luke 8, from verse 1 to 8, from the first parable. We're going to look at two different parables this morning. And the first one is the parable of the persistent person. No, it's the parable of the persistent widow. A lot of P's going on this morning. And the first verses are one to eight. Don't forget the prayer meeting. And this morning is about kingdom prayer and humility. They're, they're what the two parables are looking at. So Luke 18, verse one to eight. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, no, I neither fear God nor respect man. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So let's dig into this first section today. On the, the first reading, we might think it's like a, a verse that appears earlier in Luke 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 5, just following from the Lord's Prayer, and where the man's asleep and the friend is knocking on his door, bothering him for bread, and it ends with, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find. And then we think that, well, we need to be like the persistent widow, and God will answer our prayers. Persistence in prayer is important, and persistence in prayer is good, but that is a secondary implication of the text. What we have here is a widow going to a judge, a callous, uncaring man. He even admits it himself. He says, though I neither fear God nor respect man. He sounds like a great guy. This man is a judge and the responsibility of judges or legal officers is to uphold the law. They're not there for their own benefit, but for the benefit of society, to keep the stability of society secure by making sure that justice is done. Laws are followed and criminals are punished. But this man is living for himself and he doesn't care for man. He says he was unrighteous, Jesus says at the end. In the ancient world, the judge would have had huge power. The judicial system and process was immensely influential in society. The widow, the other character in the parable, we don't know much about her other than she was a widow and she was in dispute. We don't know if she was elderly or had anything other than she had this adversary and she needed justice. You can go into all sorts of imaginary situations, what the dispute might be, something to do with property, someone trying to claim it, uh, someone might be claiming that she insulted them in the marketplace and she deserves to be punished. The truth is that Jesus is telling this story to make a point. The woman is helpless and powerless. And she's been trying to appeal to the non-existent better nature of the judge. A widow is particularly vulnerable because in ancient Jewish society, it was the responsibility of her husband to protect her. And that, and that would include representing her in the legal process. 
but he's died and there's no man there. And in those days, gender distinction really mattered before the law. A woman's testimony wasn't uh, always considered to be as reliable as a man's testimony. So she was in a hugely vulnerable position. But eventually the widow wears the judge down with her consistence coming to him and he relents giving the woman justice. He says, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet this widow keeps bothering me. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. She finally has justice. And then in verses six to eight, Jesus brings application and meaning. We think the application is going to be about us and the widow. But Jesus shows us it's about God contrasted with the judge. The application is to draw us in to seek God and his coming kingdom through prayer. And the point is this. If such an insensitive character responds to repeated pleas from someone he doesn't know or care about, how much more will a righteous God respond to his children? This is about having an active faith in the time between the first and the second coming, hence in the, the expression of the last sentence, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is about God being a God of justice. He will judge those who persecute the righteous. He will vindicate the elect, his chosen people, those having saving faith in Christ. The mark of a mature believer is someone who persists in prayer. The perseverance is based on the fact that we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus will come again. We know that he will overturn all darkness and all evil, that all human societies that resist the faith will be overturned and will be judged. The call from Jesus is to urge his disciples and to urge us, the church today, to be waiting for his return, not consumed by it. There's some pretty wacky stuff out there with the return and the second coming, but to pray and pray again for God to come. We shouldn't be consumed either by the trappings of today and the comforts of this life, but serving the king now with one eye on heaven. Also knowing there is a God, that God is a God who hears our prayers, especially in times like this. You may be struggling right now, but there is hope. There is hope and it's not in the vaccines. It's not in easing of lockdowns. It's not returning to be with your families again, but it's in a loving, righteous father who knows how this ends, who is coming again. And your eternity is secure because of Jesus and what he did on the cross. Have faith in the father. Have hope that we know how it ends. The virus isn't going to end the world. Environmental troubles aren't going to end the world. Jesus is coming back and he will make everything new. So pray, pray by yourself, pray with others. Pray on Tuesday night as we gather as the body of Christ to call out for your kingdom to come. How are your prayers? How is your life shaped by the future of the coming kingdom? This is to draw us in, to persist in our prayer for him. This is where our hope lies, in him, in his coming kingdom. Have hope 
have faith because we know how it ends. We know how the story ends. And as we move on into the second parable that we're going to look at this morning, it draws us in to show us to look at how we come into his kingdom, how we don't work at it ourselves, but how we just trust in him. So let's move on to Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. Verse 9, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, I tell you. This is Jesus speaking. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Like the previous parable, this focuses on two characters and prayer. Again, two people at the opposite ends of the social spectrum. A Pharisee, known and respected, and a tax collector, despised and rejected. These two men have gone to the temple to pray. And the, and the heart from which they approach God are as far apart as they are on the social ladder. The Pharisee thinks he's better than other people especially the tax collector. Just a small note, really, at the start of this parable, <clears throat> but worthy of noting for the major, but major for the health of, a, of the church and for the individual believer. Verse 9 says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It does not say that he told this parable about those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, but to those who were trusted in themselves and they were righteous. He was looking them in the eye and telling them they were self-righteous. He wasn't talking about them, but to them. This is a, a passing comment, really, church. But let, let's be like this. Let's not talk about people's faults, but talk to them about their faults in a loving and kind way. It's easy to talk about people, but it's hard and often bitter to talk to them. When we're talking about them, they can't correct you or criticise you. Let's not talk about people's faults without going to them. You, when you've got a, a brother or sister in Christ in the grip of some sinful attitude or behaviour, take the log out of your eye and go to them and try and help them with humble biblical counsel. 
perhaps tell them a parable. That's what Jesus did. And now look at the problem he was dealing with. He told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's what you do not want to do. Trust in yourself that you are righteous. And this is what it is. What, what were these people doing? What were they not doing? What is wrong in their heart, with their hearts? If we're going to avoid this, we need to see what Jesus is so against here. So listen and, and test ourselves as we go through this. The, the person, the, the Pharisee, was trusting in his righteousness. But firstly, he has moral righteousness. He says he's not an extortionate person. He's not unjust. Uh, he's not an un adulterer. Secondly, his righteousness is religious. It's ceremonial. He says, I fast twice a week. <clears throat> I, I give tithes. You know, he sounds like a, a pretty good stand-up kind of guy. Thirdly, his righteousness, he thinks, is from God. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like those people. Whether he believes he's produced this righteousness in himself or God has produced it in him, he was trusting in it for his justification. When it comes to justification, for that's the issue, as we see in verse 14, the man was trusting in the wrong thing. He was looking at the wrong basis for his righteousness before God. He was looking at the wrong ground for his righteousness before God. He was looking at the wrong person and the wrong righteousness. He was looking to his own righteousness. He was morally upright, religiously devout. God had made him so, and he gave thanks for it. And that's what he looked to and trusted to, to be before God for his justification. But it was so wrong. And we mustn't turn away from today what is the doctrine of justification by faith alone on the basis of Christ alone. You are made right before God because of Christ, because of your faith in him. And the important thing to see here is that you can only be justified by and in Christ. So any produced righteousness counts as nothing when you stand before the king of glory who will judge the living and the dead. Are you looking totally away from yourself? When you see yourself standing before that holy judge and you know that to escape condemnation, you must be found righteous in this all-knowing, infinitely just court, what are you going to look to and trust in? I am pleading with you on behalf of Jesus this morning that your justification, you look not to at or trusting what God has worked in you, but that you look at and trust in Christ alone and all that God is for you and in him. We must know, we, we mustn't look at those other things because we know how the story ends. When we read through scripture, when we read through the gospels, we know how the gospels end, that we should read it from back to front because we know that he has paid the price for our unrighteousness and he has made us righteous. And the tax collector in this story is the one who is justified, made right. Let's look to his right response before God as his guidance before us. 
The tax collector, standing far off, would, wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector looks not to himself, but to God. And he trusted in nothing in himself. But he, he trusted in God and God alone. And Jesus declared him righteous in his law court. God provides his righteousness for sinners like you and me, who are not righteous. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, he, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By trusting in Christ alone and all that he did for us, and all that he is for us, that we are united with him. We are reconciled in him. And that is the only way you will find peace. And that is the only way you will find peace with God. Because we are in him. His morality, his devoutness, his righteousness. Philippians 3 verse 9 says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Two, two more verses from Romans. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 5, 18 to 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. For all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many were made righteous. Let us trust in the gift of the righteousness of God that is working in us. It is His righteousness that I will present in the law court on the basis of. My justification. I am justified and being sanctified, being more like Christ. Um, we mustn't miss the, the verse, the, the words at the end of the verses from Luke today. In verse 14, he says, For this Pharisee, I tell you, <clears throat> he says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to the house justified rather than the other. The Pharisee, the righteous one, the one thanking God for his righteousness, was not justified. He was condemned. And how can this apply to us? We are not immune to a Pharisee mindset. Whenever we create our own extra biblical rules and judge other Christians who don't follow them or, act, or, or follow them or live up to them, we are acting like a Pharisee. When we judge those living outside of God's law, uh, those who are not followers of Christ and expect them to follow God's law, and ways we're acting like a pharisee whenever we feel that god doesn't love us because we've sinned or we've failed we have adopted a pharisee approach whenever we're proud of our own goodness and we're acting like the pharisee works righteousness is ingrained into all of us somewhere we have to be like the tax collector and humble ourselves before god in this upside-down kingdom, religion, self-pride, or hatred can make us too proud to squeeze through the narrow door of salvation. Humble yourselves 
admit that apart from him, you can do nothing. But only in him can you find life and life in all its fullness. And through what Jesus did on the cross, can we be right with God and have access to the Father. And you can come to God today. <clears throat> you can welcome him into your life today by asking him to forgive you. Thank him for dying on the cross for you and ask for his empowering Holy Spirit to come and dwell within you. I'm just going to pray right now and give you an opportunity to do that, whether it's for the first time or whether you just want to come back to him today. I'm going to pray just these three simple words of sorry, thank you, please. And you can just say them after me in the quietness of your heart. Or you can speak them out loud if you're at home alone. Lord, I'm sorry for my sin, for turning my back on you. Forgive me and help me. I, I repent. I turn my back on my old life. Thank you for dying for me on the cross for my sins. Please now come and fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me follow you. Amen. We're, we're now going to come to a point where we remember that. We remember what? He did. We remember that as, he, as we humble ourselves before him, he will accept us because of what he did on the cross. When he was gathered with his disciples and he broke bread with them and he took the wine to do this in remembrance of me and what he was about to do. Have his body broken for us so that we could have his righteousness. So why don't you now take your bread and take your wine. Let's remember his body broken for us, thanking him for his obedience to death, even death on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for your body broken for us. And we take this now in remembrance of what you have done for us. Let's all eat the bread together if you've got it there. Thank you. Now we take the, the wine or the juice and we remember and we thank him for his blood poured out for us, covering us, our sins and making us new. We thank you, Lord, for your blood poured out for us. Lord, I pray. Thank you for your word thank you that you loved us so much that you went to the cross for us to pay the price for our sin for our rebellion thank you that you knew no sin and you became sin for us so that lord we could be the righteousness of god and justified before you and lord we do pray for your kingdom to come Lord, in, and your will to be done. We pray for your kingdom to come, Lord, 
in this world, in this nation, in this town, Lord. We pray for your kingdom to come. We pray for many to turn to the King, Lord, to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, we pray, help us be bold and courageous and not living for this world, but living for our eternal home, the one where we will be forever with you. Lord, help us lay up treasures in heaven as we look to reach out to the lost and the broken of this town and this nation. We pray for, Lord, all the difficulties that have been faced over the last year and 18 months. Lord, that it will just see many turn to you. Jesus, we pray in your heavenly, wonderful name. Amen.